we've been walking through the book of Daniel, and it has been so special to watch what God is doing through these stories in the Old Testament of the people of God taken away into exile and the few men who stay faithful to God. And here's how we're framing it. We're calling it children of revival because we believe they were so formed by the word of God from a young age that they were able to stand at the most unlikely time in Israel's history. And here's what we're comparing that to. We're saying, let's read the book of Daniel and talk about what it would look like if we become so formed on the inside by the word of God. That the digital Babylon that we're all living in does not compare to how formed from within we are by the words of scripture. If you're going to make it as a Christian in 2022, you're going to need more than hype worship songs. You're going to need more than emotional conferences. You're going to need more than a moment when you were 12 or 14 or 25. You're going to need to be formed daily by the truths of the scriptures. And so we're going deep into these stories. We're seeing Jesus exalted every week. And it's hard to even put a recap on everything that's been said so far. But essentially what we have seen is the people of God, a remnant of the people of God staying faithful in exile. And what happened last week is that there's a power shift where Babylon is actually taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. But still, Daniel remains in a position of prominence. And we're about to read the most famous story of all in the book of Daniel. Whether you grew up in church or not, you probably heard the story that we're going to read today. It's called Daniel in the the lion's den, y'all. It's happening. It's why there's a lion right there. It's why there's a lion in the lobby. But before we open our scriptures, I want to frame this conversation about the lion's den. Not really a conversation. It's a sermon because you're welcome to give feedback, but highly encourage that to just be an amen, a yes, and then we move on to the next thing. Not really a a conversation, more of a one-way dialogue. But this sermon is going to be titled The Future. The Future. That's a weird title to give Daniel in the lion's den because we assume that this story is all about bold faith and courage. The lion is literally the symbol of courage. There's verses in scripture that say the righteous are as bold as a lion and all of that is so true. But I believe there's something so much deeper than Daniel's bold faith in the story of Daniel in the lion's den. If you read the details of this story, and we're going to read every single one you actually find out that it wasn't bold faith that caused Daniel to be thrown into the lion's den. It was a projected future of the promises of God being fulfilled that produced faithfulness in the present. So I want to have a conversation about your future, my future, the future. Because whether you realize this or not, every person listening to me right now, your current reality in a major way is being dictated by what you see when you think about the future. All of us project a future. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, said, what we believe about our future completely controls how we are experiencing our present. Now, when you read a quote or a tweet, you always need to weigh whether or not that's actually true. Okay, just because Tim Keller said it doesn't mean it's scripture. Close. But um, you drop a Tim Keller quote and it's like, oh, well. And I went to Reformed Theological Seminary. So if you dropped a Keller quote, it was like the the trump card of all arguments. Like Tim Keller said this, like, okay, you win. Um, So it's close. But Tim Keller said, what we believe about our future actually completely controls how we are experiencing our present. And if you think deep enough about this, there's never a moment in your present that is not dictated, whether consciously or subconsciously, by what you're projecting into the future. What you believe about what's coming then will directly impact how you relate to what's here and now. 
So as you project a future for your family, for your story, and not just inside of your individualistic world, but our collective world and our country, what is it that's dictating the way you are acting right here and right now? And here's the problem that we all face. I believe that most of the people in this room and most of the people joining us through a screen right now have a dangerous tendency of doing one of two things, projecting negativity or projecting even worse, nothing. Our default is to project negativity, especially if you're pessimistic. Because you're like, I'm kind of a glass half empty because if it ends up being better than it is, then I'll just be pleasantly surprised. And so I keep my expectations low and I'm really good at projecting whatever can go wrong, will go wrong, sort of a Murphy's Law, which is super depressing and not biblical mentality about the way things are gonna go. And I feel like if I just prepare for the worst, I'll be surprised if anything is even better. And some of you would even say, I have a tendency to do that because of what I've experienced in my history. And I've seen over time that letting yourself get your hopes up too high is a bad way of relating to the future. So I've got this habit of being anxiously negative about what's coming next in hopes that things might get better, but knowing that they're just going to get worse. And I'm here to tell you today, there's nowhere in scripture that tells you that your future is a bleak, dark place to be afraid of. There's nowhere in scripture that will tell you, get more and more anxious and that'll actually make the future better. And you don't need me to be telling you this, even looking at your faces, you're like, I project negativity and I don't want to and I can't help it. And I'm telling you, if that's your tendency to relate to the future on the basis of negativity, this sermon is for you. But this sermon is even more for you if you believe that the scriptures teach you to project nothing. Some of us go, well, we, we just want to have like mindfulness and, and the practice of mindfulness has kind of been hijacked from the scriptures and taken elsewhere. But a lot of us would say, I just want to be in this moment. I just want to be totally present, not concerned about the future. And while that sounds good on paper, projecting nothing into your future can be equally as harmful because you're not banking on the promises of God to come true and create hope in the here and now. You're just on a reactive roller coaster ride of a life where you're not proactively moving at the pace of the Spirit of God. You're just reacting to whatever happens, and it's the reason why peace has been so fleeting and elusive. And so I don't want you to project negativity. And I don't want you to project nothing. We're going to learn from Daniel today how to actually, even in the worst circumstances, look up here, don't miss this, even if you're in exile and things couldn't be worse for your people, you can still project hope in the promises of God. That's what we're going to learn. Did you bring your Bible to church? If you have your Bible at any of our locations, hold it up. Hold it up high. Hold it up higher. This bro right here, he's like, I can get it to my ear. I'm a little tired today. Because you're wearing a Florida color shirt. Turn with, oh, he's like, man, don't do that. Turn with me to Daniel chapter six. Daniel chapter six. It's okay, guys. Everybody calm down, all right? It's not March yet. March is what matters. Daniel chapter six. Okay. We're going to read Daniel in the lion's den. Here's what's crazy about Daniel in the lion's den. We have a tendency to picture Daniel a certain way in our minds. In fact, in our series artwork, we have a guy in our church who comes from Jewish descent, Matthew Russell, and um, he, I just think of him as Daniel. Like, I walk around, and I'm like, you're like the age Daniel would have been when they were taken into exile in Babylon. It's amazing. And if you follow us on social media, there was a picture of him sort of reenacting this story that we're going to read in Daniel 6 today. And I was like, you know, this picture is beautiful because it, it like, takes you in your mind to what Daniel was choosing to do in this story. I said, here's the problem. 
When Daniel went into the lion's den, he was not a 20-year-old Jewish young man being brought up. Daniel was almost 80 years old when he was thrown into the lion's den. How crazy is that? The reminder, as we read this story, that sometimes, if you read other stories in Scripture, a lot of the times, God saves his best work in your life for the last season. Sometimes God, this is the story he's literally known for. Sometimes God has more to do in your 70s, your 80s, and your 90s than you give him credit for. And we have such a problem in our culture of projecting nothing for the future, particularly in that season and going, well, most of my life is behind me and my story's been told. Do not bring that attitude toward the scriptures because you'll read God showing up to a man named Abraham in his 90s and going, you're just getting started, bro. It is just now happening. And this is happening in real time in our church. And I believe God can save the best for that season. And you know what? I'm 33 years old. And trust me, there, there's not a lot about getting old that I get excited about. I'm not excited about my body deteriorating. I'm not excited about a lot of the difficulties that come from aging that are inescapable this side of heaven. You know what I am excited about? The wisdom and the quiet confidence in God that so many older people in our church exhibit as I anxiously run from one sermon to another and one daughter to the next. I'm going, I love the energy of 33, and I love the season that I'm in right now, but I'm so excited about 73. God, God willing. That wasn't supposed to be funny. I was being dead serious. I really am. I sit across from some of these men, and I'm going, and women, go, your quiet confidence in the faithfulness of God is more attractive to me than my energy that's fleeting by the day. And, and that was supposed to be funny, and no one laughed. Um, and we got another baby coming in a couple weeks, and, and who knows what's going to happen to the energy. So we're super excited. And, and Courtney told me last week, she's on the front row of this one. I know like sitting for 40, lately 50 minutes during a sermon has been painful. So if she gets up, it's not because she disapproves of the sermon. It's because either her back is hurting or, like always now, she needs to go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> Daniel, chapter, is it true? Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. It pleased Darius or Darius. Darius is the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, so we got a new power in, in play. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. These satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So you see what's happened. King Darius is now in power, taking over for the Babylonians, and he puts 120 men in charge and goes, okay, we're going to actually, we don't know that all of them are men, but 120 people, and he splits them into groups of 40 and puts one person over each one of those groups of 40. One of those three people is Daniel. Of those three people, it says the king had it in mind to go ahead and put Daniel above those three guys and just put him in charge of the whole kingdom. The story of Daniel is so similar to the story of Joseph. It is not even funny as you read this to go, wow, I feel like I've heard this before because Daniel wants you to know that. When the people of God are exiled or enslaved, God still has a remnant and he still has a capacity to pull his people back into freedom. So the plan is for Daniel to be in charge of the whole kingdom. God is prospering him. Verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. 
They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. God is prospering Daniel, but the people who are watching and the people who are in the same profession are jealous and they go, we, we literally, we can't find any deceit in him. He's not being bribed in any back corner. Like He is totally, totally trustworthy. Except he's more loyal to his God, Yahweh, than he is loyal to the king. And so if we can find something in those laws that he would have to violate, that's where we can get him. Look at verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. So suddenly, it it was just a group of satraps, but now they've all had a meeting and they all agree. If you're in leadership, you know exactly what this is like. This is your classic, hey, me and everybody thinks this. Hey, me and, uh, I, I mean, it's a lot. I couldn't even go into the names, but it's a lot of people who feel this way. There's sort of this exaggeration of we've all agreed. Everyone's in on this, king. You need to make this decision. Look at it. That the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. You need to mark this if you're unaware of this. The law of the Medes and Persians, whenever you see that, you need to know that when a law goes into effect under that name, it cannot be changed even if the king wants it to be changed. You're going to see that phrase over and over again in Daniel 6, and it's supposed to remind you, even if he's the king, he can't make this go away. You actually see this happen in the book of Esther. When the king talks about the laws of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be, it cannot be changed, it cannot be altered, and the law is going to be no one can pray to anyone except King Darius. Now, that doesn't mean that they're expecting people to bow down in private. I love that we got so many kids amening the sermon, and I would be too. Um, but, but it doesn't mean that they're expecting people to sit down and actually pray to King Darius in private, believing that he hears them. King Darius wants to function as a mediator for if there's any God you want to pray to, you have to come to me first as acknowledgement of the fact that I am ultimately your authority above any other authority that you place in your life, which totally violates Jewish law. Go to verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. 
If you're tracking with this story, this is where Daniel 6 takes a turn from Daniel 3. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were told, when the music plays, you bow down to the statue of gold. They wouldn't do it. So far, Daniel 6 sounds just like that story, except for this. When Nebuchadnezzar heard that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did this, it said he was like on fire with anger and ordered that the furnace be heated seven times higher. But when Darius hears about this, he's distressed, but not with anger toward Daniel, with anger toward himself. And it says he made every effort to save him. That's a phrase that um, describes an animal who is trapped and about to die. Like, uh, is there anything we can do? Is there any kind of way to change this law? Is there any way I can use my power or, or sort of a loophole that we can move around to do this? Verse 15, then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. And oh, by the way, one of the clauses of this law that went into effect is that if you were guilty, the sentence had to be carried out before the sun goes down. So the king's got no options. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. We can't romanticize Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. We're talking about a pit, a prison where lions hang out in the dark hoping for their next meal. We're not talking about pampered lions in a jail cell who just want to be petted. We're talking about lions who are in the dark, wondering if there's any way to survive. And anything that comes through the top of this opening is going to be devoured almost instantly. Verse 19. This might sound a little familiar. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, Servant of the living God. By the way, Daniel 6, only place where God is called the living God in the book of Daniel. Servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Daniel is still alive. And this is an absolute miracle because a Persian way of punishing a criminal and feeling justified is to leave them in an impossible situation and going, well, if you survive, you're not guilty. But if you die, it, it shows that you're guilty. And Daniel's going, I have been proven innocent. I've been vindicated. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den. Apparently the king can make new rules now that he's gotten through this, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. In case you're reading a miracle of scripture and going, well, maybe the lions just weren't hungry. Absolutely not. Apparently, the lions have 
plenty appetite to go around, and now the satraps and all of their families die as well. That was a Persian custom to not just punish you, but your family for your error. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, major theme of Daniel, that phrase, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And that is Daniel in the lion's den. The theme is God's capacity to rescue when he is trusted. God's capacity to rescue. Everybody look up here. You just read all of Daniel 6. You've been studying the book of Daniel. And as you read it, you read about Daniel being distinguished in the Persian Empire. And it ended with Daniel prospering in the Persian Empire. After Daniel was distinguished, there was a king's decree before Daniel prospered at the end, there was a king's decree. I mean, we've been studying it for a while. Could it be, is it possible that Daniel 6 is a? It's a chiasm, y'all. It's an amazing chiasm. And if you're new, you're like, what in the world is happening and what just happened to him? Got to go back and listen. We've been studying the scriptures. I got a friend from New Hampshire who's on the front row, and he's got to be like, and we're talking about that later. Um, Chiasm, Andy, in case you're wondering, is a literary structure in the Old Testament for delivering a narrative in such a way to point people to a midpoint. So things are written with a rhythm toward them so that you'll notice, oh, that goes with that, and that lines up with that, and that lines up with that. And it is so that the author or the writer can just bury something in the middle that is meant to be taught. I don't have time for a full description of that. We've been talking about it almost every week in this sermon series. You need to go back on YouTube. But I'm reading this. I'm not Googling this. I'm reading this myself, and I'm going, that's interesting. It starts with him being distinguished. It ends with him prospering. King's decree. King's decree, satraps blame him, satraps killed. This is, this is lining up perfectly as a chiasm. The part that was surprising for me when I looked at this one was what was in the middle. We'll throw the whole chiasm up on the screen. This one's a little bit longer, just so you can take in how this works. It shows that the beginning matches the end, and this is not always the structure of chiasm. Sometimes it's ABCD, ABCD, like order, order, order. It's actually how the creation account is in Genesis chapter 1. But you got, you got Daniel being distinguished, Daniel prospering at the end. But then as you get closer to the middle, you have Daniel's defiance, kneeling and praying when he's not allowed to. But at the end, you have Daniel's deliverance of being lifted and being shown as not wounded and vindicated. You have the king trying to rescue Daniel and the king witnessing the rescue and celebrating it. But right there in the middle, and we'll circle this, Daniel is thrown, that should be an N for thrown, um, and, but we'll fix that for the next gathering, in lion's den and sealed in. You see, almost every time I've heard Daniel 6 preached about, the, the purpose ends up being that he prays three times a day. And, and we'll take a, a good application of scripture and look at a story like Daniel 6, and we'll think that the point is that we should pray three times a day. And, and here's what's frustrating about that. You should pray three times a day. 
Like, that's a good sermon. That's good information. It's not false. It's just not the point of the text. And what we're trying to discover as we're walking through Daniel is that we don't just want to do fly-by scriptures and then one-liners that feel good and give us an application. That's cheap. That's easy. It's processed food. We want to eat the good stuff. We want to get to the meat of scripture. We want to go to the place where I'm actually being fed by this. And the midpoint of this is Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and sealed in. And you might be seeing that and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why is that the point and not earlier? Earlier is a big deal, and we're going to get to that. But the reason why you can tell that Daniel's driving toward this point is because he contrasts the king making all these efforts to rescue Daniel and having none. There's no legal loophole. There's no way he can use his power and authority to change the situation and showing that God is a God who can rescue when he's trusted, and he has the capacity to rescue in a way that no human being has the capacity to rescue. So Daniel's going, I want you to look at this. I want you to look at this section. And when you look at where Daniel is telling you to look, your mind will be blown at what you find there. Go to verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Okay, Daniel, I've done everything I know how to do, and this shouldn't be happening to you, but it is. Your last hope is the God whom you serve continually. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the dead. I, what? And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Okay, I hope you're picking up what I'm throwing right here. Daniel 6 is a story of Daniel being rescued by God in a way that only God can rescue. And it is also a glorious foreshadowing of the rescue of every human being who calls on the name of Jesus. Because there's an even better story in the New Testament of someone who was thrown into a tomb and sealed with a stone that could not be moved, sealed by a king, a Caesar, left for dead. And then there's a story of people hurrying to see said stone. It's rolled away. There's an angel in there. Wait a second. There's an angel in both stories. There's one angel shutting the mouths of lions, and then there's another angel who's sitting on folded clothes. What's the correlation there? The mouths of the lions were shut by the power of God, and the mouth of the accuser was shut by the blood of Jesus. You're rescue has been sealed full complete this is a Jesus message right in the middle of Daniel in the Old Testament and I'm not saying that Daniel knew the exact details of the resurrection no God is just so good that he would take a chiasm like Daniel 6 and plant in the middle of it the story of resurrection Sunday what's the significance of resurrection Sunday the significance is because of your sin you were bound for a lion's den And that lion's den is where every demon and power of darkness has the capacity to accuse you rightfully of being guilty before a holy God. And because of the blood of Jesus, and watch this, because Jesus went into the tomb, we always do the cross and the resurrection and we skip him going into the tomb. You want to know why it's so important that Jesus had to go into the tomb? 
because that's where your old life went. That's why the enemy has no power to accuse you because anything he talks about is a person who no longer exists. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus has paid for your sins and brought you into a right relationship with God, sealed your fate for all of eternity. All you have to do in light of his glory, in light of his grace is say yes today. This is a gospel message. And if you're here today and you have never said yes to Jesus, we want you to know there's nothing in your own power and strength that can save you. God alone rescues. And here's the good news. He has. Jesus has won. Does he win the throne of your heart and life? Being real, we could stop right there and worship. We could sing Man of Sorrows again. See, the stone is rolled away. I mean, I'm, I'm the only one who knows where I'm going with the sermon today. So I'm sitting on the front row just laughing, thinking about the stone being rolled away. And Daniel in that pit going, he, he has shut the mouths of the lions. But this is not just a story for us to remember the faithfulness of God. It's an invitation as New Testament believers to see the rescue that God has done for you. Is it everything to you? Does Jesus have your heart? The good news is that's not all that's there in Daniel 6. And the bad news for so many of us is that a message that powerful about the gospel can actually get stuck in an empty tomb 2,000 years ago instead of become a power source for us to walk in every day of our lives. So if we're here, and most of us in this room would say, I believe everything Miles said. Even if you are here and you're looking at me like, I'm kind of uncomfortable with how excited everyone else is getting, or you're here and you're agreeing with every word that I'm saying. Most of us in this room, in the lobby, in Birmingham, in Lake Martin, we are Christians. We would say, I am in Christ with my faith. That's not everybody, and by the way, you don't have to believe to belong here. But the church is a body of believers. The church is not a space to prepare and, and, and sort of coddle people who don't believe what we believe. The church is a place for the saints to come together to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And in the process of doing that, the world looks in on what we're doing. They go, they got something we don't have. I think I want it. Because as many of us that are here who are Christians, there's very few of us who have stories like Daniel 6. There's very few of us walking around going, I don't know how I was going to make it. And in real time, I saw the living God, the God who's living and active in the words of scripture. He's living and active in my life. And here's how. I've seen him change this. I've seen him revolutionize this. I've seen him get me through this. I want those stories just as common as the stories that we hear of people saying yes to believing that Jesus died and rose to save them. And so the message of Daniel 6 is not just an invitation to say yes to Jesus. It's an invitation into more of God. And why are so many of us not walking in the more of God. So few of us have moments in our lives where we go, God, when no one else and nothing else was going to come through on my behalf, God is the one who wrote this into my story. And here's where it collides with everything we talked about in the middle. I think it's because we're projecting such a negative future or projecting no future at all. Daniel got a miracle like this and a foreshadowing of the ultimate rescue of God because he knew how to hold the promises of God. And so while the purpose of Daniel 6 is planted in the middle, I believe the pathway to walk in that purpose is in the process of what Daniel walked through. Let's read Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Maybe you've never seen this before. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room. Quick pause and caveat there. That's a long way from the Jewish exile who didn't have a home. Daniel's home has two floors, 
That was a big deal in the Persian Empire. So wait a second, Daniel's prospering and flourishing? Yes. So here's, here's what we're not supposed to take that to mean. We're not supposed to take that to mean if you're faithful to God, you will prosper and flourish with worldly things. Uh-uh. But we're also not supposed to take that to mean that wealth and prospering is ungodly. You got to be careful. We don't want to go one extreme or the other. No, it's not a promise that if I follow Jesus, everything's going to go well for me. But no, it doesn't mean I disobey God if God is prospering me in my life. Some of the most godly people who are a part of this movement of believers, God has prospered you a lot. But the point is, did him prospering make you shift who your big G God is? And so Daniel when he's tested, he can choose the upstairs room in the two-story house, or he can choose allegiance to God. Watch what he chooses. Where the windows open toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. Notice that phrase. Prayed where the windows were open toward Jerusalem. If you'll know anything about your Old Testament, you're going, that's weird. You could have just closed the door. You could have made sure nobody can see you for those 30 days and then open the windows again. And like, what, what is up with this showing? Daniel is proclaiming in the middle of exile that his allegiance will be found, having more hope in the promises of God to come to pass than letting his hopes get dashed by the plans of man. Why are the windows open toward Jerusalem? Because Daniel knows his scripture. During Daniel's life, there was a prophet named Jeremiah, whose dad was the one who found the book of the law in the first sermon we talked about in this whole set of series. And I'm getting choked up thinking about it because I'm almost trembling within to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Jeremiah becomes the first prophet to inscribe what happened when the temple of God was dedicated in Jerusalem. You ever heard the story of Solomon's temple? David wanted to build a temple for God. God said, it's not you. You got too much blood on your hands. It's for your son, though. Solomon builds the temple. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he dedicated it with specific prayers for the function of the temple. And so Jeremiah actually gave Daniel copies. And you're actually going to see this next week in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel knows the prophecies that Jeremiah is writing. But Daniel has a copy of what I'm about to read you in 1 Kings chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. That's going to frame this whole moment for you. This is when the temple was dedicated 400 years before Daniel. Watch this. Solomon prayed this. When they, talking about Israel, sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands, far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. If you are not paying attention, you need to look up here right now. It's one of the coolest things in the entire Old Testament. Solomon's dedicating the temple and he goes, this is a big moment. But I know in the future, these people are gonna walk away from faithfulness to God. He doesn't say if they sin against you. Solomon says when they sin. 
And when you become angry with them, and when you let another group come in and take them where? Into exile. If while they're in exile, they have a change of heart. Another word would be repentance. They turn and they pray toward Jerusalem, toward the temple. Will you hear their plea and uphold their cause? At the end of this prayer in 1 Kings 8, God says, yes, I will answer that prayer. So Daniel has the windows open toward Jerusalem because he's sitting in the exact situation that he's reading about in the scriptures and going, I've got a promise. If I pray toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, God's going to hear. And it doesn't mean he's going to save me from the mouth of the lions, but it does mean he's going to uphold my cause in this life or when I'm face to face with him. Daniel prayed toward Jerusalem because he knew the promises of God and he put them into effect. What did he do? He projected a future and that future was God's going to be faithful to keep his promises. This is how you're supposed to relate to the future. In one sentence, I'll say it like this. Your prayers and God's promises mean hope for the future no matter the present. You take those two elements, promises of God, your prayers, and you fuse them together, what do you get? Hope for the future, no matter what the present holds. Some of you who are listening to me talk about projecting a future that has hope. I know it's hard. I know you're in circumstances and situations that don't make sense. I know there's always a reason to have some sort of dread when it comes to relating to the future. But what if your hope got so rooted in the promises of God through the scriptures that you knew what applied to you. And watch this, you didn't just know it in your head, you put it into effect through prayer. Learning how to pray according to the promises of God is a guarantee that God will uphold your cause and your future has more hope than it should ever have dread or fear or anxiety or worry. I feel like we just need to say a lot and let that be what it is. I got to connect this story to us. And I have 30 seconds. Y'all did the low time this week. Uh Uh-uh. Give me seven more minutes. I got seven more minutes. (laughs) Don't try that 38-minute stuff. 45. I got two questions. Two questions, and then we'll sing. These are so simple. Number one, do you know God's promises for you? Do you know them? And I don't mean flip it, loose interpretations of the Bible to make yourself feel better or to share on social media. I mean, like, stuff that you know. The writer's intent is that I would know this and put this into effect. Do you know them? Now, you might read a story like Daniel and you go, well, that's easy. Daniel literally read. Guys, I'm serious. Seven more minutes. It's like, I see the red. I know these people on the side see the red. I don't want to see the red up there. I feel like I'm in the negative. Seven more minutes. Um, sorry. You read a story like Daniel, and everybody's looking at the clock. 38 more minutes, that's great. Um, <laughs> stay with me. Stay with me, oh, it's so important. You read this story, and you're like, well, Daniel was able to read the exact details of his situation. Daniel was able to go, okay, 400 years ago, there was a king of Israel who prayed, if we ever end up exiled, then we can turn toward Jerusalem, and God will uphold our cause. And you're like, man, I wish I had scriptures that were that clear that applied to me. Do not for one second think Daniel had it better than you do. You have Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. So if you know them, put them into effect. 
Yeah, the blood of Jesus covering you, full access to the throne room of God. You've already got the full assurance that you're a child of God. The audacity of someone who knows that they're a child. My kids, they, they do not care how annoying, they don't care how many times they've asked, they don't even care how much it has frustrated me. They know at the end of the day, dad loves me and I'm dad's daughter. So the audacity that comes from knowing I can come to dad with literally anything I'm thinking about, anything at any given moment, because they know that they have a confidence in their identity. The promises of God that are over your life are so much better than the people of God in exile in the Old Testament. You have Jesus. The problem is we don't know the promises. Our awareness is the battle. And the enemy, here's what the enemy would love to do. He would love to distract you and move you into spiritual oblivion where you're not even paying any attention to what's rightfully yours in Christ. So I want you to learn how to pray aligned with the will of God. You can't pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven if you don't know the promises that are yours in Christ Jesus. And the first one is that God's your dad. The Lord's prayer begins, our father, we could Stop right there and preach on that all year long. The moment you come into the presence of God, you have to instantly stop believing the lie that God's upset or frustrated or angry. He is dad, and the first thing he wants to do, before you pray, hallowed be your name, the first thing he wants me to do is worship him. No, the first thing he wants you to do is remember that you're his child, and you worship out of the overflow of that love. Some of y'all are trying to worship without abiding. And if I don't abide in his love, apart from me, you can do nothing. So I've got, to, I've got to let his love wash over me, and I've got to be aware of the promises of God. Do you even know them? Do you even know how to get into the scriptures and go, okay, that applies to my life, and wow. And, and, and even as I say that, the answer at ACC, the vast majority, the, can we go back to question number one? Question number one, we'll put it up there. The answer for most of you is no. So here's who I'm not preaching to. I'm not preaching to everyone who's amening me who's already doing this. I'm preaching to those of you who still, because of fear, don't want to open your Bible for yourself and go, what does this mean for me? And I know what it's like to be new to that. The best way you learn how to do that is in community, being discipled by someone else, but the best way is by practicing. You won't be able to do it. If I showed you my teen study Bible, which it was my goal to finish cover to cover through that Bible before I graduated high school, and the night before I graduated, I read all of Revelation because I was like, all right, we made it this far. Let's just, whoa, I don't even have to think about this. I'm just rolling right past it. But when I look back at that teen study Bible, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I'm, I'm circling stuff that doesn't make any sense. And, and with what I know now, I look at that as childish. But here's the thing. In the moment, the Spirit of God doesn't care how long you've been doing it, how old you are. He will speak to you, and he will grow you as a disciple of Jesus. Do you even know the promises that are yours? Number two, Ben, you come up here. Does hope for the future motivate faithfulness in your present? The theme of Daniel, and it's on our window of 323 Airport Road, is hope motivates faithfulness. Why was Daniel faithful to God? Because he had a projected hope in the promises of God coming to pass. Does hope for the future motivate faithfulness to you? I love what's happening at this church where our biblical literacy has been climbing through the roof the last couple of years. You guys are becoming ruthless. Like we put someone on this stage who says something 
that's like, oh, I don't know if scripture exactly says that. You guys are letting me hear about it. And I love that. I love that God is growing that side of ACC. It's awesome. But so many of us who are fearful of prosperity preaching go, I don't want to hear anything about how God has guaranteed me hope in a future. Like, don't loosely interpret scripture to provide a hype fest on a Sunday. Let's read the word of God. Let's commit to Jesus. But here's the thing. You can swing so far to an extreme that you become allergic to hope. And I don't want you to believe that the future is a place of dread just because following Jesus involves trouble. Yes, he promised us we will have trouble. Do you know what else he promised us? That he will be with us to the end of the age. If you're a Christian, you can afford to get your hopes up. God is not gonna disappoint you. God might walk you down a road that you don't understand, but you're not gonna get to the end of that road and go, you let me down. You have a good shepherd who cares about you. And you might go through the valley. Actually, no, it's not you might, you will. But you'll find out on the back end, you're better because of it. And so at our church, can we not let our commitment to be biblical take us away from the reality that we need to be a hopeful people? We need to be bouncing off the walls in hope that Jesus is who he says he is, regardless of the present. Because if Daniel can have hope for the future in the middle of exile with his life on the line and the lions who are hungry, we can have hope in 2022 in the United States of America going, Jesus is going to be faithful to build his church. That's the kind of church we're going to be. So tell somebody, tell somebody next to you, get your hopes up. Like, get your hopes up. Let's do it right now. Stand up all over this place. Stand up all of our locations in the lobby. And let's pray with hope. Man, I'm so tired of letting myself dread the future. I want to pray with a level of hope that God is building a future for my life. It's better than what I can see. So right now, just close your eyes. I want you to think about the future. If you got kids, think about your kids. You got grandkids. If you're in school right now and the whole, your whole life is just right in front of you, think about the future from now until you see Jesus. Take every fear, every worry, and let it be obliterated with hope. Because the best thing you can think about God doing in and through your life, I promise you, God has better planned immeasurably more. There will be suffering. There will be difficulty. And unless Jesus comes back, we will all pass away. But the hope that we have in a Savior who is risen is better than any threat or dread or worry. Project hope into your future right now. If you dedicated your kids today, just project that over their lives. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these stories. I thank you for every individual who is gathered to lift up the name of Jesus today. And I pray that hope would spread like a wildfire at Auburn Community Church. Jesus, what you have promised for where we're going is better than where we are right now. You are faithful to keep your promises. You're a God of covenant who will finish what you start. And so we worship you in this place. If there's anyone who hasn't said yes to you, I pray that during this song, in light of your faithfulness, that they would lift their eyes to heaven and say yes to a God who loves them, who is for them. Jesus, you died and you rose. We sing to you. We lift up songs of praise with confidence as the people of God. In Jesus' name. Come on, in Jesus' name. Let's go.